Hello, ladies, and welcome back to the Candles and Shadows podcast. I am your host, Adele, and it's great to be back. I know it's been a while. I've been busy with moving into a new home, as well as working on some new content for the podcast. And so I'm very glad to be back, and I look forward to giving you all some great content in the upcoming weeks and days. I'm particularly very excited about this week's episode as it is my very first interview on Candles and Shadows. And it is with trauma recovery coach for daughters of narcissists, Danny Ellison. Danny connected with me on Instagram. And after I had a look at some of her work and her website, I was so impressed and inspired by her content, and I decided that I needed to have her as a guest on the podcast. This is a very relevant episode, I think, for this time of the year, as it's right around the holidays, and I think that this is, for some women, a time of the year where they're kind of struggling to make decisions about whether or not they should have contact with certain family members. And so I'm really hoping that this episode might be of some help to women out there that might be struggling with that. And it might help to better inform the decision that you ultimately make. Now, if you've been listening to my podcast for the short time (laughs) that it's been around, you may be familiar with the episode that I published entitled, Is Trauma the African Family Generational Curse? And among the many issues that were addressed in that episode um, was the issue of toxic and narcissistic behaviors of African, in my case, more specifically, Nigerian parents towards their children and the long-lasting negative effects that it has on the child well into adulthood. Now, most of you will know from just following some of the content that I've posted since I started this podcast, the goal of why I decided to start doing this is to bring light to important topics that are often too taboo or too offensive to discuss. And this topic that's covered in this episode happens to be one of them. This topic of going no contact, cutting off toxic, narcissistic parents or parents in this case, in more often than not being the mother. And although this is a topic that particularly in my Nigerian culture, it's considered quite, um, kind of a no-go, kind of an unacceptable thing to do, I still feel that it's very important, uh, specifically when it becomes a problem that has begun to affect your mental health and it has affected other aspects of your life and has made it difficult for you to move forward and to live the kind of life 
that you should be living. And so the goal of this episode in speaking with Danny and in interviewing her was to sort of unpack these issues and to shine a light on this topic so that if you are someone out there who happens to be in this situation and you recognize these patterns, these thoughts, these behaviors, these actions, hopefully you will recognize that you should not remain in this environment filled with pain, filled with frustration, and that there is an out. There is a way out. You can escape from this. You can leave this behind. And in doing so, you will be freeing yourself up to be your best self and to flourish out there in the world. Now, going no contact with parents, and in in my case specifically with my mother, this has been what has helped me to heal and move forward with my life and become a renewed person. And it's also made it possible for me to be a healthy and loving spouse, a loving mother, and sister. Many women out there are suffering under the weight of unhealthy and toxic relationships with their mothers, or maybe mothers and fathers. And it will, if it hasn't already, eventually poison the other areas of your life and ruin your true chances at true happiness. I had begun practicing no contact years ago, long before I had ever heard of it as a formal practice. So when I came across Danny's work and saw that she was a trauma recovery coach, I was even more intrigued and I knew that I definitely, definitely had to sit down with her and find out more about her journey towards deciding to go no contact for herself from her own mother, and to learn more about the services that she offers to women out there that are looking for help with dealing with overcoming their personal trauma and finding a way to be free and live a renewed life. So some of the things that will be covered in this two-part episode include discussing what narcissistic abuse is and how it presents, Childhood traumatic experiences at the hands of parents, the cultural African, or in my case, speaking from my personal experience, Nigerian, and religious beliefs that often clash with the realities of needing to go no contact, why narcissistic abuse is so much deeper and harder to break in African cultures leaving America as a form of healing, and so much more. We will also be discussing Danny's book entitled The Going No Contact Guide. So if you're a woman that has suffered from narcissistic abuse at the hands of a parent or parents, or if you're not sure and you want more information to find out if perhaps this is what is in fact happening to you in your life, then this is a very important episode for you to listen to. So sit back and relax 
And I hope you enjoyed the informative content that we cover in this interview. Okay. Welcome, Danny Ellison, to the Candles and Shadows podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Yes, you're welcome. You're my very first interview on my very new podcast. And so <laughs> I'm so honored and I'm so glad that we connected. And I, I just think we have so much to unpack in this episode. So I'm very excited to get into it. So I'm just going to quickly introduce you to our listeners. Danny Ellison is a trauma recovery coach for daughters of narcissists and is the CEO of Ellison Inc. That's Inc. with a K, which I think is super clever. I love that. <laughs> she is also the author of the book, The Going No Contact Guide. She leads clients through the process of healing repressed childhood trauma while self-orphaning and reparenting after choosing to go no contact with a narcissistic parent. Her services are most effective for adult women who are exhausted from being emotionally abused by their mothers and are ready to end the cycle of abuse. The women she typically works with have recently gone no contact or need support taking the leap soon. They have already made every effort to save the relationship and are ready to walk away and shift focus to protecting their well being. And so with that, Danny, I'd like to welcome you again. Thank you so much for being here. I'm just really curious to know, how did you, um, so let's, let's kind of go back to the beginning. Let's start <laughs> from the very beginning. So, so what was your educational and career background prior to becoming uh, a trauma coach? What brought you into this? Sure. So I definitely did not see myself going into trauma coaching. I started teaching fourth grade immediately out of college and taught for four years, elementary and then middle school. Um, I eventually became an assistant principal for a few years and really, really hated it. Um, and it coincided with COVID shutting everything down. And so like, you know, lots of people, I had some time to reflect on what was important and what I really wanted my life to be about. At the same time, I was going through my healing journey after no contact with my mom, going through acupuncture treatment for PTSD. And as all of my stuff started to come to the surface, my life just transformed. Um, during that time, I had what I call my final breakthrough. Uh, due to that acupuncture, I had a memory surface that just unlocked everything for me. And it's like my old life just dissolved. I stopped I stopped putting energy into everything that was built to please someone else, meet someone else's expectation, or get someone else's approval of what I thought my life should be. Um, and I stopped feeling guilty about no contact. I got over the depression that was keeping me stuck and like all the, the self-loathing and just all the baggage that comes with the shame of being abused by a parent. When I had that memory surface, I was over it. And within a few months, I quit my job, sold my house, and went out to Mexico for four months for sabbatical and have not looked back. So, Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. 
And so may I ask what that memory was that resurfaced for you, that propelled you to make the decision to finally quit your job and focus on healing? Yes, definitely. So I know we will get into this again later. Yes, yes, um, right. The memory of the first time that I recall feeling unsafe with my parents, Mm -hmm. and it was when I was five years old, it was actually on my birthday. And I just, it wasn't that I forgot that this incident happened. I just could not fully see it for what it was. As an adult, I I blocked out some details as a child so that I could cope because I still was with my parents after it happened. And I had to figure out a way to survive and believe that I was safe with my parents, that they loved me, you know, keeping that narrative together. Um, And so when I remembered what actually happened, um, it just it aligned for me that no contact was the best choice because I really mm-hmm. did not have any rules committed to someone who had been abusing me for my whole life. Right. You know, right. it's like it, it, it dried up the gaslight of whether or not I really should be no contact. If I was being dramatic, was I overreacting? Was I making it all up? Back that I could trace the abuse back to five years old when I was absolutely innocent and had done nothing could not have done anything to provoke it or be responsible for it. It validated that I was okay to be okay. Okay. Yes. And yes, um, we will definitely get in, get into the details of that, um, further along in the episode, but yes, I, I, I think I did hear that in one of the YouTube, I believe it was in one of the YouTube, uh, either was an interview or one of the episodes that you had recorded where you did reference um, a traumatic situation uh, on your fifth birthday. And, um, you know, what I think is so um, interesting about that recollection that you have is that, you know, people sometimes take for granted that although children are young and although children are uh, pretty resilient, they have excellent memories and they can remember things, especially if there are, if they are traumatic, hurtful things. And I also remember things that happened when I was four, when I was three, when I was five. And that's even more of a reason why I think it's so important for parents to be very careful about how they treat their children and um, how they behave around their children from a very young age, because they will remember, you know, it, 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 if it's a traumatic um, situation that occurs to them or in front of them, they're not going to forget it. And you can't just say, oh, they're young, they'll get over it and they'll move past it or they'll forget about it. No, it's, yes. that's, that's just not true. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. so good because our memory is amazing. Like our brain does amazing things to help us survive. And, you know, as I study more about the different approaches to therapy. There are so many different ways to, to approach healing trauma. And, you know, some some victims of narcissistic abuse have very little memory of their early childhood. And a lot of times we do that to repress pain that we're not able to place in our life. Like if we don't have the capacity emotionally to, to process it, our brains will protect us from that. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, human nature in general, when we are kids, we are absorbing everything around us, not just what our parents tell us. In my house, I was told, do as I say, not as I do. 
my dad will still want to tell me that today. <laughs> and I'm like, that is not yeah. how human nature works. That's not how it works. Right. I'm going to do what I see, especially as a child. That's what I'm programmed to do. So right. we remember things. It's because the incident was significant enough to be saved in our memory. Like, you know, there are right. tons of things we forget about childhood, but minute details about abuse that we can still recall into our 60s and 70s. And so when I work with clients, the work that we do is focused around surfacing the evidence of abuse from early childhood as a means to self-orphaning so that we can move. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. So, um, Danny, so where are you originally from and where did you grow up? I'm from Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. And okay. I moved around kind of a bit. I lived in Virginia. I lived in North Carolina. I went to college in New York. And after college, moved to Phoenix, where I started teaching. And I later moved to Mexico. So I've been, you know, moving around all my life, really. Um, but yeah, I'm from Oakland. Okay. Okay. And did you move around a lot because of your parents' jobs? Or was it related to career or work in any way? Or just family? Well, our first move was really my mom and I running away from my dad okay the, the mm-hmm. way that I remember it that's the way the story was framed for me there was just so much going on at the time mm-hmm. uh, he had actually been in prison for the first five years of my life and then mm-hmm. came home and within the three years that he was he was home and we were there together it was just like all hell broke loose mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so after a few years of that uh, my mom decided that it was best for us to move with her mother who was living across the country at the time mm-hmm. and we got some bus tickets and took the bus to virginia from california oh wow that's a long trip yes oh wow mm-hmm. i can imagine that was uh, a lot for such a young child at that age to be experiencing all that was. change yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that was a crazy period of my life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. All right. So you are now done with your teaching career. You hated it as you <laughs> took out what you said earlier. You could not teach you just this leadership. Just the admin. Just leadership. <laughs> it was fun. And working with students was fun. But after right. being an AP, I feel like now I know how the hot dogs are made and I just <laughs> I totally understand. Um it's really unfortunate that that's the case because I think that that ruins it for a lot of people who have a true passion for teaching when they have poor administration, poor leadership. It just kind of kills your motivation. It just kill it just kills everything, all the joy. It steals the joy out of the profession for you. Yeah, yeah. I definitely pull the wool from my eyes and I can't see the system in the same right. way. I still have this right interest and passion but i'm just not willing to place myself in that system anymore i don't i just that season is over and i'm ready to do something that feels more meaningful yes yes and aren't and i'm so glad that you that you did that you had the courage to step away and move towards your true calling uh becoming a trauma recovery coach so oh all right so you you specialize in primarily helping black women and you assist them with going no contact uh, with their narcissistic parents. 
Um, from your experience with the clients that you've had at this point, um, what percentage of these problems are with mothers or fathers or or a combination of of both? Um, I would say overwhelmingly, like maybe ninety nine percent of my clients are dealing with a narcissistic mother. Sometimes the father is also a narcissist, but usually is the more enabling passive narcissist while the mother is the active abuser um, or the father is completely absent. You know, like the, mm. the client has never known their dad or kind of knows them, but they're not a part of their life in any way. So it's either one, one of the two. It's very rare um, that I work with clients who have like parents who are still together and married. It usually is a single mother or a mother with a distant father who is enabling by being passive. I see. And I would imagine, I mean, you can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that even the the fact that the father is passive or non-existent, not present, that that also contributes, that's also a form of trauma as well for the, for the, for your client. Yeah. Yes. Neglect is absolutely a form of abuse. So by being absent, you know, on the surface, it could seem like the absent parent is uh, less less, I don't know, responsible response what yeah what the child experiences, but they're equally, if not more so, if they know about it and they're not intervening in any way, if they're not advocating for the child, it it's the same amount of responsibility between the parents. They just play different roles. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh wow. And um the fact that these are primary that the fact that the your clients primarily come from a single parent home in which the mother plays more of an active role in their upbringing and childhood um would you how much of that pressure to be a single parent do you think contributes to the narcissistic abuse that's occurring in the home um i feel like it may be the other way around i think the narcissistic mm -hmm. personality kind of breeds the dynamic that eventually leads to single parenting. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times, especially because I work with Black women and so in the Black community, there's, it's like when narcissistic abuse affects Black women differently because when we are abused, it's compounded by all these other forms of abuse that we experience. So the narcissistic abuse of the parent is compounded by the fact Typically, Black women are placed in this role of matriarch in the family because the Black male is absent for any number of reasons. Um, and so the trauma that the mother carries is absolutely a generational form of self-abuse. And it just doesn't tend to create a, a happy, loving relationship with the partner. Interesting. Yeah. And... Yeah. So in other words, because they, it, it, that puts them in a position where they make poor choices in partners, which then sets them up for the dynamic in which the father will either be absent, will be, a, will just not be participating, absent, incarcerated, whatever. And they will be in this um, then re, uh, 
relationship with their child where they're basically passing that trauma, the trauma that they've been experiencing onto their child. And I would imagine that if some of these women are very young when they have these children, um, that perhaps they may not have they may not have the tools or the life experience to have really taken the time to really recognize and heal themselves before embarking upon motherhood. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So for our listeners who don't know what narcissistic abuse is, could you please tell us what it is and how does it typically present? Sure. That's sort of a loaded question because abuse or well, narcissism occurs on a spectrum and so right you have narcissists who are formally diagnosed you have some who are not it's not always important um but the behavior tends to range from covert to overt <clears throat> excuse me um and the narcissistic abuse is a form of emotional and psychological abuse sometimes physical and sexual also mm-hmm. um that is based on a sense of control. One person in the relationship has established control over the other by breaking them down emotionally, um, by deriving some sense of power from being able to control the other person's emotions. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, thank you for explaining that. And uh, I think that that's... Hmm. I think that that's uh, when I think about that in my own experience, which I will, of course, get into a little bit later in the episode, I can definitely see how that has uh, presented itself in the relationship between myself and, and, and my mother. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, uh, Danny, as I was preparing for our interview, I uh, watched some YouTube videos. Uh, she has great content, by the way, guys. So I'm going to include all that information in the show notes. You got to check out her YouTube channel. She gives some really excellent advice. Um, but one of the things you uh, said in one of your videos is that you decided to rename yourself. Mm-hmm. And that was actually an important step in your journey towards healing. So my question is, did you legally change your name or did you just choose to use a different name professionally? So I have not changed my name legally yet. I'm honestly still on the fence about whether or not I want to make that change legally. Um, But I was midway through my healing journey, like two and a half years in. And um, it was actually the time I was mentioning when I had my final breakthrough and it surfaced and I was ready to just go and leave that life behind me. And for some reason, my name seemed to just carry too much baggage. It was like, I need something different. I need to be liberated. And at the time, um, I love Harry Tubman. I love her. Like, I just... Me too. And at the time, I was... Doing some research about Harriet Tubman, recall that she changed her name yeah. after she achieved freedom. Yes. And that yeah. just resonated so much with me at that time. It felt like, you know, yes, I have made this journey to leave bondage behind. And my identity, my name really, I mean, I know the history of my name. I talked to my parents about who named me and why. And I just don't want to have to carry that 
that legacy. It just felt like, you know what, I can, I can change this. And it was empowering. Um, it was liberating. And um, I was doing some more research in one of the forums that I'm active in. And a lot of adult children of narcissists make the choice to change their name legally uh, to when, when they like go no contact and they really leave and they don't look back. Not just as a form of safety so that they can't be researched by their family, but so that emotionally they can move on from having to be called the same name that is associated with being abused. Yeah, and so for me, um, renaming at that time was was very powerful. <clears throat> and the people who know me after a certain point in my life know me as Danny. And so it is a very helpful delineation <clears throat> because the only people who use my birth name are like my grandma, my dad, people who have known me all my life. Right. And it is really um, a great way for me to compartmentalize the trigger of what my name brings up. Right. So you... Uh, so Danny is not your just El Ellison is is your birth is your birth last name or your you've changed both names? No, I changed both names. Danny is um similar to my middle name. Ah, but okay. Ellison I chose because Ralph Ellison who wrote Invisible Man is one of my favorite authors. <clears throat> oh, yeah, the story that he tells about um, a black man being liberated really from the educational system, like we were just discussing. And all the implications that it brings about race and identity um, really resonate with me. It's one of my favorite stories. Mm -hmm. So Ellison, that's why I chose the last name Ellison. I feel like it it really points to a lot of the work that I do um, mm -hmm. as as an educator, as a coach, as someone who has helped to remove this veil from the eyes of those who control. And so that's my little nod to Ralph Ellison. I like that. I like that you put so much thought into the choice of your new last name and that it connects to such a, um, an important person in history. Yeah, that's really great. That's really great. Um, and so now that you, you've renamed yourself and uh, you, do you feel more you've been able to further sort of remove yourself from that traumatic uh, childhood and that traumatic past that you had previously. Um, would you say that, that it has dramatically improved your life? Just the simple, just simply changing your name and, you know, moving on with your life with no contact? It feels more like the cheery on the Sunday of all the other work that I did to get to that place. Yeah, um, because throughout the healing journey, what I learned early on and the tip that I pass on to my clients is that it's very helpful to speak of your inner child as though she is a separate person to give mm. her space for her own identity. Mm. So when I talk about my inner child, I refer to her as her. You know, I talk mm. about her as though she is someone else. And mm. so, um, and I mean, really, it does go back to the way that trauma affects our brain. Especially mm -hmm. as children, when we are experiencing trauma, it creates a deviation in the way that our brain develops and the like the path of development that our brain is taking. It mm -hmm. creates a break. Right. So there really is a fragmented part of you. You know, your inner child becomes kind of paralyzed in that place and you become a different version of yourself 
in order to cope and move forward from that trauma. And so highlighting that delineation for me was freeing and it it removed this burden of having to like mask it all and keep it all together, you know? It helps me better show up in the world. It gives mm. me a way to identify when I meet with people and like frame my story, which is a huge part of therapy. When you're coming out of therapy, how do you reframe and uh, reintegrate into the world, knowing what you now know about yourself? It's mm-hmm. renaming was, um, it, it wasn't that it was the drastic change. It just kind of highlights all the drastic changes that built up to that place. Right, right. And what would you say to a client or someone who would say, you know, changing your name is giving, is sort of allowing your abuser to win. You're allowing the person who traumatized you to basically steal your identity to, to your, your, you're basically, yeah, you're, you're, you're surrendering to them. You're allowing them to have that much power over you to the extent that you would change your name. But what would your response be to someone that would feel that way or that would say that to you? Well, I would imagine if someone feels that changing their name is disempowering, then it's not something that, you know, it's not something they would choose to embrace. If it's not helpful for you or your healing journey, then that's don't touch it. Um, personally, it was very empowering for me to take that control over my identity. And again, I know that aligns with a lot of the healing journeys of other adult children of narcissists who choose. I think it's specific to no contact because when you go no contact, when you self-orphan, you are leaving so much of who you believe yourself to be behind and so in many many ways you are becoming a new person you're embracing a new life and the less that you try to hold on to the better the better you're going to adjust to that um, new space that you've created for yourself and so you know definitely if it's not helpful for you then then don't go there but for many Mm -hmm. just realizing that that is an option is enlightening yeah and i think i think the way you've you've broken it down and explained it is very helpful. And I think that that is something that maybe a lot of people never consider. They never consider the fact that, hey, you know, I don't, I, I can, I can step away from this identity. I can become a new person. I can distance myself from this. I don't have to, to continue to relive the trauma of my childhood, of my early life, of of even adult, if of course adulthood as well, if it's continued that long, that you do have that freedom, you do have that choice to say enough is enough, and I am stepping away from this, and I am creating a whole new life for myself, and that's I I personally find do find that to be very empowering and very courageous. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, and yeah. thank you for saying that. Not just for me, but for so many, because. When you're raised by a narcissistic parent, you're taught that you're not allowed to have emotional responses that are natural to your human existence. Like you're not allowed to have any control over the way you show up in the world. And so when you realize that you're safe now, you know, like you don't have to look over your shoulder, especially when you have done the work. Some people 
literally save up, move to a new country, change all their contact information and never look back. And when you go through those great lengths to become safe, it is very helpful to realize that you have full control over whatever you do with your life. And in some regard, you have to experiment with that, you know, in some way, whether it's like you big chop and go natural or something, you you as a person start to experiment with all this choice and freedom that you have now that you didn't have when you were in control. Exactly. Um, and I think when you make, choose to make that shift, vibrationally, you're stopping one cycle and you are starting another. You know, you're stepping out of this position that you've held for so long of serving everyone else, of being this people pleaser, of sacrificing yourself for everyone else's well-being. And when you recover that energy and then redirect it to yourself, you are creating an entirely new cycle of not abuse, but of love for yourself and for other people. So exactly, choose to put a new name on that, and that empowers you and solidifies that change for you. I'm in support of that. Absolutely, and I can relate to that. Um, I have shared on my podcast um, in a previous episode that I did on uh, abuse and trauma within the African, specifically the Nigerian community, and how it is generational. I have personally shared that, uh, you know, I have had to basically relearn everything <laughs> about what it is to, to be a woman and to be, um, how to treat people, how to, uh, how, how to attract a, a healthy partner into my life, how to, I'm now a mother. I have a 16 month old son and I'm actually six months pregnant with my second child. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And so um my child that um my, my the child that I'm pregnant with right now is actually a girl. And um this is yeah it's girl girl power. That's even more of a reason why this topic resonates with me so strongly because I had such a traumatic childhood growing up with a Nigerian mother who I personally believe is a narcissist. And I did suffer narcissistic abuse at the hands of my mother. And um, now being in a position where I'm about to have a daughter and I'm already a mother to, to a son, I just, when I think back on some of the things that happened to me in my childhood, I'm just like, I can't believe that this happened. Like, I'm a mom now and I can't imagine doing that to my child. I can't imagine making, intentionally making my child cry, hurting my child, um, seeing my child upset and not care. And just, it, I, I can't, because one thing I used to hear a lot from relatives when I was a kid and also when I was a teenager is, Oh, just wait till you become a mother. You'll understand. Wait till you become a mom. Then you'll, you'll, you will understand your mother better when you become a mother. That didn't happen. If anything, I resent my mother even more now as an adult, as a mother, because I have done so much work to unlearn all of the things, all of the negative things that happened to me. 
and I'm in a much healthier space. And I can't possibly imagine treating my children that way. And so just having the courage to step away. And I also live, I moved to another country, which was coincidental because my husband happens to be, (laughs) he happens to be European. So that was kind of coincidental. But even if I hadn't married a foreigner, I'm pretty sure I still would have left the country because that's how much I just needed that distance. I needed to get away. I needed to separate myself. I needed to establish a new identity. And to your point about, you know, with regards to changing your name, I honestly living in Germany now, living in a new country, having living in a place where no one knew my family, no one knows anything about my parents or about my like, I'm just a I'm a new person in this society and I've been able to rebrand and start a new business and start a new life. And it's so freeing and it's been so um, helpful to my mental health and to my uh, recovery, um, in, in, in reco- my, my process of recovery, journey through recovery towards just becoming a healthier person and getting to finally getting to the point in my life where I said, you know what, I'm at a good place now. I think I'm ready to become a parent. So, yeah, it's really. I'm, I'm, that's why I'm just such a, I'm a big supporter of people just doing everything possible, whatever it is that fits your frame of life, whether it's moving to a new country, changing your name, moving to a new city, changing your phone number. I mean, for some people, just changing their number is a lot, right? For some people moving to another country is, is, you know, that's as far as they would need to go. Right. So um, but yeah, I, I think that that's so, so important. Yeah. 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 Well, so you mentioned something that is really cool and mm-hmm. I'm not a parent, um, but I will say I've come across a number of testimonies from adult children of narcissists, as well as clients that I've worked with, seem to say that becoming a parent helped them to see just how heinous their parent really was. Because now they're in the position of raising a child and they can't imagine doing or saying any of the things that were done to them. Yes. Um, But the key point you mentioned is that you have done work to heal. It's been intentional. It's been challenging. And I think that the reason I work specifically with Black women is because, like I said, this abuse affects us in a specific way. And I think the generation of Black women who are currently on the move have an opportunity to heal this trauma that our mothers and grandmothers did not have. You know, they were not emotionally available to show up to surfacing any trauma, let alone healing it. You know, they were, like like I mentioned, put in this role of being the matriarch, of being a strong Black woman, of being a single parent, of being the superhero. And they were just trying to make it every day. You know, so yeah. even when we when we look at things like obesity being an epidemic that disproportionately affects Black women, and the connection between our emotional well being and our relationship with food, you know, we can see that our mothers and our grandmothers and beyond they were too burdened by life, by like mm-hmm. what's on their plate for today, mm-hmm. to really do any retroactive emotional shadow work they're not able to do that it's something that we have the opportunity to do 
Yes, I agree 100%. And I do think, however, that um, we living now in the age of information and with the access that we now have to the internet, to um, TV shows, Oprah, I mean, I grew up in a household where Oprah was always on at four o'clock in the evening, in the afternoon. And um, I think that what makes it hard for me and maybe for other uh, people like me who kind of grew up in a household where we were kind of going through that transition where um, awareness was becoming more prevalent. People were actually coming forward on talk shows to discuss abuse and to discuss things that were happening. And so it was no longer this this hush-hush topic that people didn't discuss. And I think that's even more of a reason why in some way it's I do hold my mother very responsible for her actions because it's not as if we were living in a time where these things were not being talked about. You know, all these shows, The View, The Talk. I mean, these are the, sh the shows that people like my mother enjoy watching and they talk about everything. I mean, there isn't a... There isn't a topic that doesn't come up that relates to motherhood, that relates to family. You know, they talk about everything. And so I think I, I would say, of course, for my grandmother and great grandmother, you know, those generations I can more or less excuse due to the fact that they were, you know, in, 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 at least in my case, having uh, they were living in Nigeria where they definitely didn't have um, even televisions at that time, right? Or even radios for that matter to even like have that kind of exposure. Sure. Um, but um, I do think that, you know, if you grew up in the United States, if you grew up in a Western society, and if you um, grew up in a home where these things were prevalent topics in the, in the media, it's, it's, it's almost inexcusable. The ignorance is just hard to excuse. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. So much has surfaced over the last yeah. 50 years or so. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously the world has changed so much. But I think it is really easy, or it was really easy, for mothers and for our grandmothers to see this conversation starting. And yeah. I think a lot of people make spectacles out of the victims who are brave enough to come forward and expose it. When you are the the whistleblower, when you're the black sheep, when you're the one who's coming forward to tell the truth, yeah, it benefits everyone else to act like they don't know what's going on, like they're not involved, and let you hold that space by yourself. Mm. So I think it's a lot easier to like hear it and see it happening and be triggered and feel uncomfortable and just change the channel or, you know, put that person down to shame them, right? Like that typically is what happens when we are not, when we're not practiced in compassionately abiding with people, when we don't know anything about what it means to heal trauma. Mm, it's mm. like in, in your typical Black family, abuse is happening left and right. You know, it's just like abuse of breakfast. It's just a normal thing. It's just normal. It's in, it's in passive conversation, you know, having your feelings dismissed. It's just, it's so prevalent. It's just baked into the culture because of the ignorance that you mentioned. 
Right. And so, yeah, I, I feel like for mothers and, and grandmothers, yeah, they were not primed. And I don't think they really had the support because mm-hmm. uncovering your trauma is is a step in itself. But healing it is an intentional process and it requires commitment and dedication and it hurts. So if you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. Right. Yeah, it requires you to kind of look at yourself in the mirror. And I think that that it that goes against the very nature of a narcissist, right? A narcissist <laughs> does not want to confront or does not want to admit or take responsibility for their behavior. And so of course they're not, it's not gonna click in their head like, wait a minute, like I need to go work on myself or I need help or I should. No, they would never think about that because the whole nature of what they are is to be someone who is going to pass that blame on to someone else, okay, or victimize someone else and to not take any responsibility for the role that they're playing in the situation. Yeah. Their way of saying safe is to normalize the abuse by passing it on. Right, right. They get distance from their negative feelings by projecting it onto their child. That is their relief. Yeah, rather than be introspective and see their flaws and shortcomings and attempt to work on them, they would rather give it to the child and make that the child's identity so that it is separate from them. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, they're much more likely to be the people who are <laughs> who are ridiculing people for going to therapy. Therapists are crazy. Why would you pay somebody who needs therapy themselves to give you therapy? Right. Therapy right. for crazy people, right? To shame you for going to do the work because for them, right, they can't conceive why they would need to go and, and talk to somebody about their trauma. Right, right. Or in the context of the Nigerian community, they look at it like that's a white people problem or that's a that's an American problem. We're Africans, we're Nigerians. We don't have, we don't need professional help. We don't need to go outside of the home to solve our problems. We have family. We have one another. We can we can deal with this in-house with it within ourselves. We don't outsource our pain. We don't need to go sit down with a professional. It's almost like they, like you said, it's like a shaming of, you know, professional um scientific health. Okay. Um that has helped I mean, there's a reason why the industry is so successful and why people, I mean, it's, there's a huge movement going on right now around mental health. And it's because people are finally, and I'm glad things are changing now. Things are shifting now where more and more prominent people, especially are coming forward to say like, there's nothing shameful about getting help, especially black people, especially in the black community. Right. Um, There's nothing shameful. You're not crazy. You're not sick. You're not delusional. You're not psycho. You just need someone to talk to. You need a professional. You need to sit down with somebody who is trained in this area um, to unpack some of the issues that you have. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm glad that that's that's shifted. It's shifted considerably because when I was growing up, I would hear these you know people say, "Oh, that's you know that's that's white people problems. That's not us." And it's like. Yeah. What are you talking about? Like, we have a lot of dysfunction <laughs> in this family. Like, what do you yeah. mean? Like, 
you know? <laughs> yeah, so, I feel like so many different issues intersect and just in that conversation alone, because in America, Black children are nine times more likely to experience traumatic events in childhood than any other demographic of child. And Black children and adults are the least likely to seek help exactly. for, for their issues due to stigma and um, community narratives along with the lack of access, you know, they're just very likely to go without getting any sort of help for their trauma. Exactly. And I think for Black women, femininity and worthiness are like intersecting right on top of that issue because it's almost like we are gaslit out of believing that we're even worthy enough to have mental health, let alone need some mental health support. You know, it's like the right. level of self-care is for Becky. <laughs> you've got that idea from, I don't yeah. know, what do you think you watch that told you that you were worthy of therapy, but whatever's like, you need to be grateful because X, Y, and Z didn't happen to you. You need to be grateful because when I was yeah. growing up, I went through this, this, and that. And nobody did this for you, and I fed you, and the lights were on, and you went to school, and, you know, your hair was done, so stop complaining. That's typically what we're taught, and when we break that narrative, it's like, oh, you're being weak. Um, right. you're, being, you're being silly, but we're women. We should be right. able to what do you mean? We can't, what do you mean? I can't be weak. I can't have negative emotions about traumatic events. What is that? Exactly. Exactly. I can't be human now. Like I can't, right. I can't be a person now. Like that's, exactly. that's crazy. Yeah. That's absolutely if, crazy. If we wow. don't break that narrative, then we talk ourselves into it and we continue the cycle because now exactly. we have to perpetuate the, the abuse to find any relief in the cycle because now we're buying into this idea that we can't be human. We don't need help. I don't need to talk to anybody. Nothing's really even wrong. This must be normal. So I just perpetuated in my life and with around me and the cycle continues. Exactly. Um, so I'm curious to know, Danny, more about, and of course you're welcome to share what you feel comfortable sharing, but um, I'm curious to know what sort of traumatic experiences you had with your mother growing up um, that influenced you the most. And how did you handle that abuse as a child? Um, how did you manage it? What was your what was sort of some of your coping mechanisms um, growing up? Sure. So thank you for asking me. It's such a loaded question. Narcissistic abuse can be really, really difficult to talk about because the emotional psychological part is invisible you know it, it's covert and mysterious and it's undercover and it happens when no one's around and it's just you and your abuser listening and so when you go to reflect on it a lot of times you can't remember what exactly happened you're not even sure what exactly happened and it's really difficult to like pin down and be specific about what was done to you right um, but with that said, my mother was very verbally abusive um, from about five years old on up. Around the time that um, she and my dad started to break up and their relationship was ending, she started to take some of that anger out. Mm -hmm. and so that looks like verbal abuse, um, maybe some some physical abuse when I was younger, but I, I really don't 
identify necessarily with being physically abused, but I do think she took some liberties with discipline that probably were not necessary. Um, but then also exposing me to adult concepts when I was very young, um, leaning on me to be her emotional support, talking to me like I was an adult friend, putting me in the position to like counsel her and I felt the pressure of having to support her emotionally so she did not break down and stop taking care of us. Um, as I got older, it was gaslighting about the abuse when I was like a teen and growing into a young adult, trying to hold her accountable for things that she would say that would hurt my feelings or that were wrong. And then it was, well, that never happened. And what about you? And, you know, just no accountability for anything that, that she did to hurt me and teaching me that I could not have an emotional response to her calling me out of my name or putting her hands on me or saying things to me that weren't true or that hurt my feelings. I was not allowed to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, there was ridicule and humiliation mixed mm-hmm. in to her parenting. You know, she would also like do the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing where one minute she was super nice and wanted to be my friend and she was the best mom and she wanted to like have these lifetime movie moments or like eating cookies and telling secrets and then very soon after that flipped the script and used everything that I've shared with her against me um, exploiting my insecurities to hurt me hmm. and using me for money. I would say that's oh, a, wow. a roundabout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you asked about coping. And mm-hmm. so I mentioned before my initial traumatizing experience with my parents was when I was five. And um, I think we'll get more into like what actually happened later. But after that experience, within the six months following, at five years old, I gained 50 pounds. Yes. Wow. Wow. And so. Um, because of what happened, I was alone with my parents when it happened. We were like removed mm-hmm. from everyone. And when we came back home, I didn't have the language to like tell anybody what happened or or even process what had happened. So I just started to comfort myself with food. I would just mm-hmm. push down my feelings by overeating. Mm-hmm. And it did not take long for me to put on weight. And I remember we like went to the pediatrician around that time, but no one ever really did anything about it or got to the root of it. Um, but yeah, e- eating was definitely a major coping mechanism. Um, and then I think overachieving was like trying to achieve to get approval from my parents, from my family, uh, was also a, a big one, like getting strays in school. Mm-hmm. Let me see what else. I definitely became um, like a peacekeeper. I would, from that time forward, I was like a little adult. I would be trying to be two or three steps ahead of my parents to make sure that I could keep things from getting out of control so that nobody would get mad at anybody else. And so a lot of peacekeeping and like people pleasing. How did I cope? Um, healthy things I did. I remember I, when I was coming into my teenage years, I started to write in a journal a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that I did that. That was something positive I did to channel. 
I wrote a lot of like journal entries, a lot of poetry, and that was healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but eventually it was like seeking love that I wasn't getting from my parents, from other people, from friends and from boyfriends. And that, of course, opened up a whole new Pandora's box of trauma and abuse. Right. So, yeah, coping was rough. Was rough, yeah. Um, Oh, um, I yeah. just remembered. I I read it somewhere recently that um, excessive reading is a very common coping mechanism for children of narcissists. And I would mm. read all the time. Like mm. I read through an earthquake. I would read for eight hours straight. I would just tune everything out and read a book. And so mm. while that was good because it you know got me through school, gave me some interest and developed me, um, that definitely was a form of escaping my life right right i've actually heard oprah talk about that because she had a difficult uh, relationship with her mother growing up and she mentioned that books became her best friend so she immersed herself in books and stories in order to escape the realities of what was happening around her um how would you say that it, this shaped your personality. So you mentioned becoming more of a peacekeeper. Um, would you say that, did it influence you in any way in terms of becoming more introverted or more extroverted in some cases or shy, or did it impact your confidence level significantly? Absolutely. So I think just naturally, I think I'm an, I'm a hardwired introvert regardless. <laughs> um, but if I were not already hard, I think, that experience definitely would have made me one because um, both of my parents were explosive personalities. You know, any little thing would lead to a, a whole blow up, you know? And so being afraid to make the wrong move or say the wrong thing um, definitely muted me, I think. And it created this dynamic where I would feel stressed around my parents because I was holding my real identity in. It was like I was holding my breath emotionally whenever they were around and just waiting until I could get away from them so I could feel safe again. Yep. Yeah. Um, something that just came to mind is I learned to be funny. Yeah. Ease the tension. Interesting. So like, if you can make the narcissist laugh, they will kill you nicely. And so I started to, like, find ways to make my dad laugh or make my mom Mm -hmm. laugh. And it would make me feel safe, even though Ruth Mm -hmm. wasn't safety, of course. But Mm -hmm. um, that was also a little little trick I learned. Mm. It's interesting. Um, I'm I'm also an introvert, (laughs) really hardcore introvert. Mm -hmm. Um, And interestingly enough, as a kid, my mother would try to shame me for being an introvert because apparently in the Nigerian culture it um being an introvert being someone who doesn't like to socialize who likes to stay in their bedroom who likes to do their own thing who likes to read books as you said like what you what you enjoyed doing as a child um she found that to be a shameful thing the fact that I was just not more outgoing I was not more social didn't really want to meet new people didn't really want to get involved 
And I think what she didn't realize is that it was that was directly connected to the way in which she treated me. Just like what you said about your parents having those explosive sort of personalities. My parents are were are both that way. You kind of walk on eggshells. You don't really know how they're going to react at any given time. Kind of like what you mentioned about your mom being kind of Jekyll and Hyde. You don't know what you're going to get on any given day. And that kind of insecurity, that kind of unpredictability in people's personalities around you, at least in my case, it made me kind of retreat into myself and put me in a position where I just didn't want to deal with anyone. I was just more comfortable dealing with myself because at least I know I won't hurt me, right? And um, that affected me significantly, affected my confidence level as well. Um, And this kind of followed me into my adulthood um, in a negative way, in the sense that I always felt somehow that I wasn't good enough because I was so used to as a child being treated as such that something was wrong with me because I wasn't like other kids, so to speak. And um, it made it such that professionally, I had difficulty speaking up, you see. And this is something that it's in the Nigerian home. And I suspect it's definitely part of the African-American culture as well. The sense that you're supposed to, like, as you said earlier, be seen and not heard. Right. And um, that effect that affected my confidence level, because suddenly now I'm a professional in this environment where I'm supposed to be speaking up. I'm supposed to be heard. I'm supposed to make my presence known and to um, represent myself and to advocate for myself, et cetera. And I couldn't. Yeah. Because I those 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 skills or that ability had been been suppressed mm-hmm. for so long, and so um, yeah, I don't think parents realize that when you inflict that kind of trauma on your children, you are in some way contributing to their personalities sort of turning out a certain way. So I, I do believe. Personalities are mostly genetic, but we can't deny that there is a component that is social as well that gets, you know, influenced by what we're around. Yeah, you're you're right on the money because Mm -hmm. uh, when children are raised by narcissistic parents who abuse them, they have to find reasons to believe that the abuse is their fault. Right. Children are not able to separate and like oh my parent is crazy but there's nothing wrong with the child has there's something wrong with them yeah change so that they can be more acceptable or more worthy of their parents loving them the way that they deserve right so we cope and we edit ourselves to become safer and to become more likable for our parent but when your parent is a narcissist, they groom you to be abused by other narcissists in the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they're setting you up for abusive dysfunctional partnerships, for um, abusive dysfunctional fake friendships, and to be taken advantage of by employers and, and um, institutions. Yeah. Because yeah. you're being taught that you're not worthy of basic respect. You're being taught that you're identity is not valid you're not validated by your parent you are shamed and diminished by your parent 
And so it is so critical that as we come into healing, we realize, like realizing your parent is a narcissist means that their attacks on your confidence were intentional. You know, when you're going through it as a child, you're you're actively trying to figure out how to believe that you have played some role in this, that if you just had used a different tone or said a different sentence or like things right. could be different. And you have to understand that all of those patterns right. are intentional and that yeah. your parent is engaging in them to dysregulate you and regulate themselves. Yes. So that that confidence, um, it's like your your parent, especially the mother, is strategically attacking your confidence because if you feel good about yourself, if you feel empowered and you're loving yourself and you feel brave enough to be who you really are. Um, she is not able to not only control you, but she's not able to commandeer that momentum for herself in any way. Right. And so she will intentionally break it down in you so that you will mirror back to her the way that she feels about herself. Right. Right. And what's even more twisted is that on top of all of that, because um, I remember as I got older, I, I started to kind of call my mom out on her bullshit, basically. Excuse my friend. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) And and, um, what was so twisted is that she would turn around and say, you know, how could, you're my child. Of course, I I only did these things because I care about you, because I love you. And, um, you know, what mother doesn't love their, their, their child? And, and, and I think you referenced this early, earlier, Danny, I put, we, we put a roof over your head. We put clothes on your back. We sent you to the best schools, um, you know, and all this, all this stuff. Right. So they, they gaslight you into, into like, you start to question like, okay, am I overreacting? You know, if am I confronting them about these issues about how it's how it's affected me and how it's impacted me in my life. And am I, am I, is the problem me? Am I being ungrateful? Right. Right. And you hear that all the time. I hear that all the time with friends of mine, um, African-American friends and Nigerian friends that there's just this, and that's a form of, of abuse as well. Narcissistic abuse, because they are refusing to take, to acknowledge, um, the feelings of their child. And they cannot under, they don't understand that you can both be a good provider for your child and you can simultaneously abuse them at the same time. Like that is possible, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a reflection of the dysfunction that they are used to. You know, we spoke about our mothers and our grandmothers generation. They just had a different set of. Right issues to to tussle with and right um like there's just a huge gap between myself and my grandmother i love my granny dearly she's 86 years old tomorrow's her birthday and although i appreciate her so much we are like night and day as yeah women you know she thinks yeah. some of the choices that i've made are selfish and she just can't she just can't wrap her mind around the lengths that I've gone to to keep myself safe and like protect my energy 
and care for myself. It's received as selfish. Like I'm doing too much and, and I need to be, I, I don't know, giving my resources away to other people. Right. Make their lives easier and just take mm-hmm. up this mantle of suffering that has gone before me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they're not used to having their feelings acknowledged. Right. Their right. inner child is, their inner child has to be extremely repressed for them to yes. survive their life experience. And so I think we are seeing these Black women who have more access to health and wealth and ease and peace, and they want a better, like a higher level of vibration for themselves. And so we're allowing these inner children to come out and say what they have to say, and it's not convenient for everyone. Right. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah, I agree. It's not convenient for for people who are just not not ready to um, to confront the truth and to address it and to look themselves in the mirror. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I did watch your wonderful interview with Stephanie Perry, and everyone should Go check that out as well. I'll include the link to that as well in the show notes. Um, You had a really um, in-depth conversation with her um, regarding your work. Um, And as we mentioned earlier about what happened when you were five, um, I want to circle back to that now. And if you could please share with us um, what happened on your fifth birthday that had such a major impact on you that was sort of uh, the catalyst that sort of pushed you into finally deciding, you know, I'm going to dedicate my career and myself to um, healing uh, um, trauma for other Black women out there. Sure. Um, So first, trigger warning, domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as I was turning five, that was right around the time that my dad had just come home from prison. And my mother made plans. You know, we were in Oakland, so she made plans to take me to Disneyland, which is in Anaheim and like, I think that's like six hours from Oakland. Um, And, you know, we were planning to go, the two of us. But the day of, we were going to go, I think we were taking the bus down to to Disneyland. And the day of, my dad showed up with a rental car and was like, Let's be a happy family. We're going to do this together. And so we got on the road and we started heading to Disneyland. And along the way, they started to fight like they usually did. And somewhere along the way, he slapped her. And after he slapped her, um, I think we stopped at the gas station. And my mother was very upset. She was like ranting and raving and crying. and, And she told me to sit in the front seat with my dad and she was going to sit in the back and so um looking back i realized that i should not have been sitting in the front seat at five years old like you know i don't have kids so that that didn't occur to me at first um but she told me to sit in the front with my dad and she waited for us to get back on the freeway and when we were going full speed we were in the fourth lane she took her shoe off and she hit him in the back of the head as hard as she could. And she told me later on that her intention was to knock him out and kill all of us because she wasn't willing to go on being abused 
and she was angry and she just wanted to end it all. Oh my God. Yeah. And so I was sitting in the front seat. I was completely awake. And so I remember every, like, I remember every second. We swerved across all four lanes. Thankfully, did not hit anything or like flip over anything. The car was out of control. And my dad regained control. He started, of course, yelling and cursing. He pulled over and he beat my mom in the backseat. Wow. I was sitting in the front seat, like inches away from them, watching him punch her in the face over and over again, like seeing her face bleeding and and now we remind you, my dad had just come home. So although I knew he was my dad and we had visited him, like I knew who he was, I didn't really know him. I didn't, I wasn't really familiar with like, am I safe with this person by by myself? Like, how is he going to take care of me? So by the time my mother was unconscious in the back seat and we were back on the road, I was terrified. Like I didn't know if she was dead. I didn't know. If he was going to kill her, I didn't know if he was going to hurt me. I didn't even know if we were still going to Disneyland or what. Like, and I was too afraid. I was petrified. Like, I didn't speak. I just stared straight ahead. I was completely disassociated. I remember now. Um, yeah, and I was, I was terrified. I didn't know what was going to happen next. And oh my what goodness! Next was we went to Disneyland, and we just had my birthday. Like nothing happened. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. So I remember being oh in Disneyland God. at the little like parade of lights that they have when the sun goes down. My dad picking me up and putting me over his shoulder that had the like light up sword and everything. So from the outside in, it looked from the outside looking in, it looked like, you know, I was having a happy fifth birthday. But I was looking around thinking, like, should I try to signal a stranger and tell him to get me out of here? Like, am I one of those kids who's going to be on the news because something really bad happened to them? Like, should I be advocating for myself right now? Am I safe? Like, all those things were running through my mind. And I was intentionally faking like I was having a good time because I didn't want my dad to get mad that I was upset, which is crazy. And I didn't want my mom to get mad that I wasn't having a good time and, like, blame him and then start another fight. So... Already, I was in people-pleasing mode, trying to hold it all together and think like I was having a happy birthday. Oh, my goodness. That is... Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Uh, That is something that no child at any age, but definitely not at five years old, should ever see or experience. That must have been so incredibly scary and traumatizing for you. Of course it is, as you mentioned earlier, but I mean, and this is on top of all that, this is a man who, like you said, you had, you know, you know, he was your father, but you didn't really know him like that, you know? And so here he is, you know, sort of coming back into your life after years. And this is impression this is one of the biggest impressions that he's making on on your on you at such a young age this this abuse well him and your mother bo- uh, both right. of them yeah and that's oh my goodness part is like oh my god for the longest time so the way that i i brain that narrative to cope with it 
was for years and years, I made my dad the bad guy. And, you know, there is no excuse for punching a woman in the face, right? There's, there is no excuse for domestic violence. Um, but after the event, my mother would talk to me about it, like a friend, like an adult friend. And she confided in me how she planned the whole thing out. And how she like made a joke about how it was her Macy's heel from back in the day that was real wood and it was solid and she she really thought she could knock him out with it. Um, and how she made peace with like the fact that I was going to be dead and we were all going to be dead. She talks to me about all of that. I mean, yes. Oh my god! You know, I needed to. I could only focus on. The fact that I watched my dad beat my mom unconscious, like that played on a reel in my mind. Right. And it was easy to make my dad the bad guy, but it took me nine months, like three and a half years of therapy, nine months of acupuncture to actually uncover at 29 years old that, oh shit, the reason that he beat her unconscious is because she tried to kill him and and her. And it just, it just hit different after that. I was like, wait a second. Yeah, right. There's no excuse for my dad's behavior, but also no one's saying a word about the like what? Yeah, right. And I was already no contact at the time. So it validated for me that all these abusive um notions in your adult relationship with your mother, you're not making it up, you're not being dramatic, you know, you're not over exaggerating. There's a pattern of abuse. In this relationship, right. and as early five mm-hmm. as early as five years old, she showed you that you can't trust her, and that she will put her emotional satisfaction before your literal well being. Yeah, exactly. Right, mm-hmm. and even the fact I'm even just shocked about the fact that she even admitted to you and told you that her plan was to basically end all of your lives by hitting your father in the back of his head while he was driving on the freeway. Like, I'm just shocked that she would even admit something like that. The crazy, bizarre thing is she felt no type of remorse, at, at least when she talked to me about it. It was like she didn't feel any shame, any need to run conceal that she tried to kill us or apologize for that. It was like she felt entitled to that because he slapped her because of how she felt about it. And... You know, just as an adult putting all the pieces together, um, I, I I feel no guilt about being no contact. And the funny part is my story is just like another ghetto black girl story. You know, it's so extreme when you really look at it. But yeah. compared to what we go through as a whole people, I'm just another little black girl who had regular parents you know yeah. as far as our community is concerned like right it's deeper the trauma and the abuse gets worse and there are voices out there that will speak up to invalidate my experience and like tell me that i need to get over it wow wow and if i ask my parents about it today like i talked to my dad about it and he says that he doesn't remember it how convenient. How, How convenient. convenient. And then yeah. my, my mother, even though she talked about it for years, like, so you know, with a narcissistic parent, 
they tend to have these different stories that they put on them. Yeah. You hear that yes. Yeah. What happened on my fifth birthday was one of her stories that she put in rotation for years. And so when I got older and I went to go call her out on it and I was no contact, now all of a sudden she can't remember what happened on my fifth birthday. Oh my gosh. So nobody remembers I, what you did. I just I I just find it so fascinating because I've had the same experience with my parents when I try when I bring up things that happen as a child. How is it that I was a child at this time? I'm the one that's supposed to not remember what happened, right? Because I'm supposed to be the so-called resilient one, the one that's going to, you know, forget it the next day. And, you know, maybe the, the fact that you guys actually, you know, ended up going to Disneyland, that's supposed to sort of overshadow what had occurred, right? Like, how is it that you at five remember everything detail for detail? And they, they were adults, full grown adults, and they have no recollection. That is just too convenient. Yeah. Well, so on the one hand, because I was the child, yeah, all of that imprinted on my brain in a completely different way than it did for them. Yeah. So I remember all of it in like HD, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. It was just another day in their lives. And I don't think either one of them actually does not remember. Um, yeah. I, I like I will put money down on the table that my mother remembers what happened. Sure. Sure she does. Many times. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. But it's like for them, they don't want to remember that and they don't want me to remember it. Exactly. It's almost like them denying or claiming amnesia about the situation in some way is supposed to be contagious to you that you're supposed to suddenly not remember it as well because they don't or you're supposed to forget it because they don't you know yeah, i've had that experience yeah oh yeah wow oh my it's, goodness it's a part yeah. of the the shaming cycle that comes with being the black sheep because yes choose to speak up about what's really going on if you choose to tell your truth and not just be hypnotized into the matrix around you then you right. become the target of the animosity because you're threatening the system that they are all working so hard to right together exactly to going. right um, right and so actually after the event on my birthday when we were like back in oakland that's our regular life um, a few times within the weeks that we returned, my mother and I were driving in the car, like driving down the street. She's driving, I'm in the passenger seat, and she would go off on a rant about my dad and be yelling and cursing and, you know, mad about my dad. Not at me, just mad because they were breaking up, mad about him and all the stuff he was doing. And then she would look at me and say, I'm, she said to me, I'm so mad at your dad. I just want to swerve the car into a pole on your side and kill you. And then she swerved the car. Now, the first time that she did that, I was terrified. Like, I was afraid for my life. And I realized later at 29 that she did that on purpose because she knew I was traumatized from Disneyland. So she was just trying to get some emotional supply from me. Because it was the best, it was the closest option she had to hurting my dad. And she started to do that regularly. Like, she did that for years 
by the time I was like, I don't know, 13, I would be reading my Harry Potter book, ignoring her while she was swerving the car. So that became one of her. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. That is horrible. I don't, I can't even imagine why a mother would want to do something like that to her child. My goodness. Well, wow. The, the other piece that's coming up for me right now, because we talked about education. Yeah. And it's like this difference between Black women and and therapy being this this white yeah. idea. Yeah. Especially having been a teacher and having been an AP, it's crazy to me that I was never given any sort of therapy in school. I was never right. accommodated with any, like I was never um, given like a 504 or an IEP for emotional disturbance. I never got any kind of accommodations. And it's like, I'm imagining that that, was the case because I presented as talented and get mm. because when you're a mm. child and you're traumatized, it matures you. And so my teachers were like, "Oh wow, she's like little Maya Angelou." Like nobody knew what like how, it, it came off as a good thing because I was getting straight A's and I was articulate and like to have conversation, especially with adults. I never fit in with my peers because I was already light years ahead of them. Um, so nobody ever addressed what I was going through at home. And if anyone had actually, it, you know, somebody did knew. My, my teachers knew. They knew enough to get me some, some help. But yeah, it was like, it just went into a vacuum of those great terrible things that happened that I wasn't supposed to feel anything about. And we Wow. 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 What I am, what I am happy to hear you say though, is that you have taken all of this. I mean, I don't even, I can't even find the words to describe this. I mean, your mother swerving the car, basically intentionally trying to re-traumatize. I mean, my mind can't even compute that. That is just so unbelievable to me. But what I'm happy to see in you is that you have taken all of this and consolidated it into a extremely helpful and necessary career in guiding other women through narcissistic abuse. There are some people who would have gone through what you've gone through and would have used that as an excuse to carry on the trauma, pass it on to the next generation, basically, or use it as an excuse to not do anything with their lives, to give up on themselves, to not be, you know, not remain ambitious or not to seek out other ways to find purpose in their life. But I have to say that I'm even more just hearing you tell me the story right now makes me that much more impressed with what you've done with your lives because there are some people who would have literally lost their minds or not been able to cope just their lives would have just gone became nothing they would they probably wouldn't have amounted to anything they would have ended up hooked on drugs or just alcoholic or who knows what they would have just done nothing with themselves and wasted their talents and abilities and 
I'm so glad to see that you that that you've that you've really taken the time to heal and that you've given yourself that self-love um that you so desperately needed after going through this with your mother and with your father as well. And I'm I'm so glad that you're an example to other women out there who may have or who probably have experienced similar things in their childhood, in their lives, and that you can serve as an inspiration to them, showing them like, hey, like you don't have to be that. Just because you come from that, that that's no excuse. Like you can be better. You can do more with yourself. You can take that energy and channel it into something positive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for of course saying that and for sharing it with him. Yeah. This yeah. is not the kind of thing you can always share with people, you know. Sure, sure. Thank you for that. Um I'll say like I I definitely have to give the glory to God. Because if it were not for the purpose that mm-hmm. was placed on my life that has nothing to do with me. I probably wouldn't be here. I think I would be right. dead already, to be honest. Right. Because mm-hmm. I have been through a lot of ups and downs. The dysfunction was real. Like the pain mm-hmm. and the, the different rock bottoms that I've hit throughout my life growing up have been real. And I could very easily. And I, I think we, the reason narcissistic abuse is so important to highlight in our community is because I think it's at the root of a lot of missing black women black girls that we don't have and we don't realize that that's the cause because we've lost them to suicide or domestic violence <clears throat> we've lost them to drugs to alcoholism like you said and it looks like oh she's a fiend or you know oh she got caught up with the wrong man because she's a hoe and she doesn't know how she doesn't know any better you know or even the number of Black women who are living these muted lives because they're being crippled by obesity. Right. Just these different forms of coping mechanisms that become our identity. Right. Because the trauma, it really is such a such a heavy burden to unpack. Like, that is a yes. bag to unpack. And so um, I feel privileged to be able to step into this this role of being like a midwife for other Black women's healing and to help them yes. make it through this transition without it being so mysterious. Because even while you're going through it, you feel like you may not make it. There are just times when it seems dark and you don't know how to move forward because you're literally dismantling your identity. Right. So, Absolutely. You know, yep. yes, it was, it was rough, but I feel... That my my greater purpose in helping black women heal from this sort of abuse is because the women that I'm meant to help are women who also have these purposes that we you know we need. They have platforms, they have um, ideas and visions to birth, and they're not going to step into their purpose. They're not going to elevate into their highest selves while they're still being abused by their mother, and while they're still coping with the abuse even if they upon no contact and they're repeating this cycle because they they don't know how to heal it yet um, right i would really like to see us put this in the past so that the next generation of black women can be more aware and safer they can grow up with their innocence intact rather than be drugged through trauma because of narcissism you brought up an excellent point about how 
there's so many Black women out there that are being muted by uh, these experiences and not not reaching their full potential in life. And yeah, I totally agree. And I'm really, I'm really glad that what you do, um, you know, it will help more women to um, see the light and to recognize that there is life after escaping, um, getting away from their narcissistic parent and going no contact that there, there is a lot of life on the other side. It's not the it's the end of that old life and it's the beginning of a new future. It's the beginning of the potential that you have to give to give something back to your community um, and to the world. So, yeah. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. I hope you are enjoying this episode. Coming up in part two, Danny will explain the therapeutic methods that she uses to guide her clients towards healing and transitioning to go no contact. Some of the other points that we will discuss include how to recognize the differences between discipline and abuse at the hands of a narcissistic parent, why narcissistic abuse is so much harder to break in clients from African cultures, how Danny reconciles her treatment methods around abuse and trauma, with the cultural and religious beliefs of her clients, the great exodus of Black women leaving the United States and how leaving is a form of mental healing, Danny's reaction to harsh criticism of her work, tips on how to deal with going no contact and the guilt of denying your child the love of their grandparent, and finally, we will discuss her very helpful ebook. The Going No Contact Guide, which I believe is a must read. So stay tuned. You don't want to miss part two of this series. If you have any questions or comments or would just like to get in contact with me, you can do so by connecting with me on Instagram at Candles and Shadows and also by email at candlesandshadowspodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, my listeners. It's very encouraging to get feedback from you. So I thank you very much for that. I very much look forward to hearing from you. Happy holidays, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.